Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Pray with me, Sunridge. God, that is, uh, that's the prayer of our hearts this morning, um, that you would meet with us here uh, on this last day of 2023, as we look forward to another year of serving you and being a church. We do adore you, and we need you to be every, in, in every part of our lives. We need you to be in this moment as we look into your word, and um, that you would be with this church and the people that are part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Happy New Year. Almost. Hope you guys are going to make some good choices tonight. Counting on that. Uh, if you're a guest here today, my name's Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor, and I'm so glad to see you guys come out on a rainy day and the last day of, for many of you, like a, a holiday. Got one more day after this, I guess. So um, I want to just like take a moment here before I jump into the message today and talk about what we've been trying to do in our offering in December is, you know, like every December, our church kind of focuses on something that's important to us. And uh, this, this past December, many of you know, we've, um, we're trying to raise enough money to hire a full-time high school pastor. And when we started our budget process, which, you know, um, our budget begins in October, um, we had set aside, you know, um, enough funds to do a part-time high school pastor like, like we're doing in junior high. And to be honest, we just haven't found the right person. And, um, you know, that is such an important... We found some really good candidates that were looking for full-time employment. But um, as, a, as a guy that um, started in high school ministry, that's what brought me to California, to Huntington Beach. I was a high school pastor. I realized what an important time in the life of, uh, you know, a student that is. It, it changed my life, and I'm sure many of you... If I were to ask you, you would say, you know, uh, I made a significant commitment to Christ during my high school years. And I just think it's such an important uh, part of our ministry here that we said we want to we want to raise money for that. And uh, so we we need to raise fifty thousand dollars over our regular budget. We're not there yet, but this is the last day of December. And. Um, you know, in the interim, we've been doing great high school ministry. Our, uh, our former high school pastor, Teddy, came back, even though she's in her first year of teaching, and Jed has been in there, and, you know, Jed wears about 10,000 hats here. So even if you don't care about high school students, you just care about our, our pastor, Jed, because I don't want to kill him, and uh, we work him hard enough as it is. So if God's tugging on your heart, if that's something that's been important, and your, and your Christian experience, I'm just asking you to do something extra this month. Okay, that's it. So, you know, 
uh, I, I, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but uh, our mission here is to help people find and follow Jesus. And none of us can do that with, without actually knowing who Jesus is. And some of you, uh, uh, most of you probably already know this, but some may not. There, there are actually four biographies of the life of Jesus <clears throat> in your Bible. They're the first four books of your New Testament. And today we're going to launch a study of one of those, the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to do it, <clears throat> excuse me, similarly as we did two years ago when we studied the Gospel of Luke. And that we, ha we have set a target to, to conclude on Easter Sunday. So, you know, Mark concludes with the empty tomb. So I think it might be an appropriate way to finish up our study and do that on Easter. And as we go through the book, we can kind of anticipate Easter Sunday coming and what, what of course, happens, uh, you know, on that day, Resurrection Sunday. So uh, I'm going to kind of nerd out today a little bit introducing the book of Mark. But right away, I want to tell you, I got some homework for you guys. This week. Are you ready for your homework? Okay, so number one, what I want you to do is I want you to watch the video of Mark on the Gospel Project. And if you're, if you're not familiar with Gospel Project, if you got a note sheet, the link is on the back, okay? It's a six-minute video where uh, Tim Mackey gives a, a, an overview of Mark, and you're going you're gonna to love it. If you've never uh, watched their videos, it's fantastic. The second part um, is a little more difficult. I'm going to ask you to read through the gospel of Mark in the next week or two in one sitting. Now, don't freak out, because I didn't say read the entire Bible or pick up Tolstoy's War and Peace and finish it this week, okay? It's one book about Jesus, and the good news is there's only 16 chapters, but I want you to be able to get the big picture before we start chunking it out. You know, when you think about it, the way we read the Bible a section at a time, or sometimes we pull out a sentence at a time. It's such a weird way to read something, right? Like, like right now, I'm reading uh, Michael Connolly's series, Bosch. Any fans? Bosch? Just me? Okay, like 10 of us. Um, you know, I would never read the, the Bosch books like, like we read the Bible. You know, I wouldn't like open it up and find a sentence and go, that's my sentence today, you know or someone got murdered or whatever. It's a lot of murder in this book, so. Um, which is very comforting to me, which might say something disturbing about myself. But. So, so that's your homework for this week, to, to watch the video, and then sometime in the next week or two, just, just say, I'm gonna, you can do it in less than an hour, I'm telling you, and just read through. Read, read, don't read it in the King James. Read it in a really easy-to-read version. You're going to love it. So, but today what I want to do is kind of give you a brief overview of the book so you can get your bearings as you read through it. And because even though each of the Gospels uh, tells the same story, right? Uh, Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, uh, each is unique as well. Each has a unique purpose and a unique audience. In fact, that would be a great thought for us to capture as we start today. The Gospels are biographies of Jesus each with an agenda, a distinct agenda. Each has a unique audience and purpose. See, the Gospels, they're, they're not just stories about Jesus. Each author has, has an agenda, a reason why they wrote their account. You know, sometimes criticisms come of the Gospels in that they mistake the uniqueness of each Gospel to be a contradiction. 
But, you know, what happens is people read the same event in a different gospel, and it's told a little differently, or brings out different nuances in the story, or it's placed in a different part of the story of Jesus. By the way, not all the gospels are written chronologically. Um, these, these differences can be seen as a contradiction when they're actually not. It's what, what's happening is the failure to recognize that each gospel has a distinct audience and, uh, and a purpose in mind when they wrote it. So each gospel writer is trying to answer this one question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? But it's important to know that they're writing it for a different audience. So in other words, like, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little phlegmy today. Sorry about that. Um, those pow mouths are getting me. Um, if I were writing a message for uh, adults, like when I wrote this message, uh, I wrote it for you. It's, it's my Christmas gift to you guys. That would, I would write it differently than if I were writing to our high school students, right? Or if I was writing a message for Americans, I would write that differently than if I were speaking to Scandinavians. So that's kind of the idea here. So when, before we jump into Mark, I want to briefly cover the unique agenda that each gospel has. And the first gospel to appear in your New Testament is Matthew. And Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews and emphasizes Jesus as the Messiah. And Matthew was one of the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. And if you watched The Chosen, then you can see Matthew. He's like this quirky guy, right? Um, but the Jewish people's history was that they, they were the chosen people of God. Remember, we just studied Moses and we saw that. Uh, and that belief went all the way back to um, the father of their faith, who's Abraham. And through Abraham, they were promised to have a land of their own uh, where they could thrive under God's rule. And they were to represent God, and they were to be God's image in the world at that time. But as we know, their history was a little spotty in that regard because they often rejected Yahweh and they broke their covenant with him. And as a consequence, God brought discipline upon them. And they went, they went into captivity. They were taken captive by the Persian Empire. And now, where we are in Mark, in the first century, they're under Roman oppression. But their Old Testament scriptures promised them that eventually uh, this great and new king would come. And he would save them, much like their king David. In fact, this new king would actually come from David's lineage. So the Jews placed a huge emphasis on the importance of Abraham and one's ancestry. So Matthew's goal then is to prove that Jesus is the new king, the Messiah come to rescue his people through that lineage. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy beginning with Abraham. Matthew 1.1 says, this is the genealogy of, Messiah, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here, Matthew says, this man Jesus was the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham, which is a, a summary of his lineage. And, and so, like, um, all the hallmarks of the Jewish Messiah are right here in Matthew's gospel. 
And then he kind of runs through that genealogy. And then just so that nobody could miss what he was saying at the conclusion of that genealogy, he sums it up in Matthew 1.17 where he says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. You see that connection to the lineage. So the audience of Matthew's gospel is Jews in the first century, and his purpose was to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. So we're going to skip Mark if we were going through your New Testament, and we're going to go next, the next book, which would be Luke. And Luke's gospel was written to the Gentiles. Theophilus, we, we studied this and emphasized Jesus' humanity, emphasized who he was as a human being. And unlike Matthew, who traced his lineage of, traced the lineage of Christ to Abraham, the father of their Jewish religion, Luke traces the lineage of Jesus all the way to Adam, who is the first human being. In fact, he doesn't even bring up Jesus' ancestry until chapter 3. And many of you might remember from our study of Luke uh, that he was the only Gentile author. Most scholars believe that he was Gentile. Uh, um, that wrote a book in the New Testament. In fact, he wrote Luke and Acts, and he was the biggest contributor to your entire New Testament. Luke is responsible for uh, one-third of your New Testament. But we also know that he was a physician, right? And so he put his scientific brain to work as he chronicled Jesus' life with a view toward the Gentiles. And we can see in Luke 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to, to, to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants, servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And here in, this, in his opening to his book, you can clearly see Luke's purpose. He says, I've carefully researched uh, the life of Jesus through the eyewitness accounts. He went around and talked to these people. And um, he, he categorized the life of Jesus chronologically for this man, Theophilus, who was, they, we believe that he was a Gentile official who wanted to know more about who Jesus was. And so we see God using Luke as a unique person that he, that he was, which is noteworthy for all of us, right? That God doesn't expect me to be Matthew or Luke. He just expects, expects me to be Brit and you to be you. And he uses us in the way that he's designed us. And as a Gentile, Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. That he didn't just come for the Jewish people. He came for all people. And Luke is the only one that, who records the angel's announcement to the shepherds. Luke 2.10 the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, for all the people. And then Luke tells us that when Jesus is taken to the temple by his parents to be dedicated, the godly man Simeon approaches him and says that Jesus uh, will not only be to the glory of Israel, but he will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So Matthew, going back, is written to the Jews and says, Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And Luke is written to the Gentiles, and he says to the Gentiles, Jesus was a real man. Next is John, 
And John's gospel is written to both Jews and Gentiles and emphasizes Jesus is God. John is the other eyewitness uh, writer or author of uh, the gospels. He is the one whom Jesus loved. And here's an interesting note about the entire book of John. Did you know it covers less than 30 days of Jesus' life? It's true. 10 of the 21 chapters in John cover just one week in the life of Jesus. And one-third of its total volume covers a single 24-hour period. And John is often the book that uh, we recommend to newer Christians to read, right? Or non-Christians so that they can either, either discover faith or bolster their faith because it's an easier read. And John gets right after the fact that Jesus is God. His purpose is that Jesus is God and he's in control of everything. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. And then he closes his account in John 20, 30 by saying, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel is written to the general population, and his purpose is explicit. Believe in Jesus because he is God. Then the last book, the book that we're going to study. You guys still with me? Wave at me. Okay. Um, So we're going to look at Mark over the next 14 weeks. So let's just talk a little bit about the man that wrote it. Okay. And these, these are in your notes. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. John Mark. John is his Hebrew name. And Mark is his Roman name. And you might ask, well, why has the guy got two names? Uh, often, uh, Jewish people in the first century were given uh, a secondary Greek name. So it's like, you know, Saul. It's also called Paul, right? Saul's his Jewish name. Paul's a Gentile name. You know, the Bible never refers to an individual specifically as John Mark. But several times when he appears, he's called John, also called Mark. And that helps distinguish him from all the other Johns. Because John was the most common name, the most common Hebrew name. And then Mark was the most common Roman name. So they had to bring the two together so that you would know which John and which Mark they were talking about. In at least one instance, he's just called Mark simply, but we can tell from the context, same person. Now here's two quickies. Um, The first mention of Mark is in conjunction with his mother, Mary, who held uh, meetings uh, for believers in her home. That's in Acts 12. And then you may know this, that Mark was a helper to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he deserted them in Perga. We talked about this when we studied the book of Acts together. And his abandonment of, um, it just really tweaked Paul. And, And Paul didn't want to take him on his second missionary journey. But Barnabas, who was Mark's cousin, uh, really thought Paul should forgive him and get over it and drop it, but Paul refused. And that broke up the Paul-Barnabas team for a while. And they went their separate ways, and near the end of Paul's life, though, the two reconciled. It's a great, great story in your New Testament. Now, we don't know for sure, but Mark may have been an eyewitness to some of Jesus' life. He may have been. The reason I say that is it's been speculated that 
the young man who flees naked as the soldiers sees Jesus in Mark 14, some people think that's John Mark. And uh, if so, um, then he was following Jesus possibly as an adolescent. But when confronted by the others, he runs to save, just like the others, to save his skin. But if Mark was around Jesus only a little or not at all, the question would be like, where did he get his source material from? Where did Mark get the stories of the life of Jesus? And it's likely that Mark's primary source was the apostle Peter. He got his stories from Peter. First of all, he was a close associate of Peter. Peter calls him his son in the close of his first letter. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Now, Mark's not his biological son. This is, this is simply a, a phrase that indicates the close relationship that Peter and Mark had. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's really fascinating to me, I don't know about you, but it's the way the Bible was written. Maybe, maybe you th you've had this different image of how the Bible came. This very Bible-looking character had a scroll and a pen, and then like there was a voice, and he's like, oh, slow down, God, I've got to write that. It's like, that's not how it happened. You know, we looked at how Luke, you know, had all these interviews and traveled around and met the people that, that were with Jesus or had stories about Jesus. And here, Mark is probably spending time with Peter. And here's another reason why scholars think Peter was Mark's source. Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis until 130 AD, said that Mark was a secretary and translator for Peter. And in his writings, he said that, that of Mark, that he wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. So Mark is with Peter, and Peter's downloading his life with Jesus to him. And then Mark doesn't just throw it all together. He has a design in his book. And that's especially uh, significant because there's evidence that Papias lived from 66 to 135 AD that he knew John, uh, the beloved disciple, personally. So Mark's gospel is most likely, what we're going to read here, is the eyewitness account of Peter. Peter didn't write a gospel. He wrote some letters, right? But we're probably getting Peter's version. He's telling Mark these stories. Uh, some other uh, things that contribute to that, uh, the idea that Mark got his information from Peter is he mentions Peter more than any other disciple. Uh, uh, and he mentions Peter more than any of the other Gospels. And when you go through Mark, um, you'll see nothing happens in which Peter is not present. And Mark even captures Peter's personal confession in Mark 8, 29, when Jesus asked him, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. Can't you picture Peter telling him, telling Mark that of that moment when he finally realized Jesus was who he said he was. Now, you might be interested if I still have you. Do I still have you? I told you you're going to nerd out today. So um, you might be interested to know a little bit about how the content of Mark compares to the other Gospels. Even if you're not interested, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. So um, Mark was composed between 55 and 60 AD, and it's the earliest Gospel to be written. 
Uh, that, that, it, we know that because it's so clear that the, that the other synoptic gospels um, relied on Mark as one of their sources. John's gospel is unique, but there are three uh, gospels, Matthew, Luke, and Mark. They're called the synoptic or summary gospels. And it, all the evidence points to that they used Mark. They relied heavily on Mark for when they wrote their Gospels. I'm going to put a chart up here on the screen. And we showed this when we studied Luke, but if you just kind of spend a couple seconds looking at it, um, what that chart will tell you is the relationship between Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And what it, what it says is that 97% of Mark is found in at least one of the other synoptic gospels. So 97% of what, what is in Mark is also in either uh, Matthew or Luke. And then over three quarters of Mark's content is found in both of them. So that, that shows you the relationship Mark, Mark's gospel has with the other ones. And that points to the fact that Matthew and Luke drew heavily on Mark's work when they wrote their biographies. And that's, that's really the major reason why most scholars feel that Mark was the earliest gospel to be written. Here's another thing about the gospel of Mark we're going to look at. It's the shortest of the four gospels. There used, you know, uh, I'm going to go way, way back. I think when I was a kid growing up, there was a show on, and I think it was so old that they were reruns when I was a kid. So this is a show my parents watched, but it was called Dragnet. Do you remember Dragnet? Okay, it was about an L.A. detective. He's like, Britt, you lost me. Um, you're way back as friends, you know. Um, but in, uh, in, in Dragnet, this L.A. detective, his name was Joe Friday. Joe Friday. So do you remember what he used to say when he was interviewing a witness, uh, how he would keep him focused? That's right. Just the facts, ma'am. Nothing but the facts. So Mark is the Joe Friday of the Gospels, okay? Whereas a third of Luke, remember, is, is, is unique to Luke alone. Um, Mark is unique in its lack of individual content. You see the difference there? Um, if, we, if all we had was Mark's Gospel, here's some of the things that we would be missing. Um, in fact, only, only 3% of Mark is unique from the other Gospels. Uh, but if, if all we had was Mark, here's what we'd be missing. Jesus' birth. Did, did you know that like only two Gospels talk about Jesus' birth? And um, Mark begins with Jesus as an adult. He's 30 years old. And John the Baptist. We're going to see that next week. If all we had, would Mar if all we had was Mark, um, we'd have no genealogy. And we're going to see why uh, when we look at the beginning of this book and its purpose. If all we had was Mark, there would be no post-resurrection appearance by Jesus. In fact, you're going to see when we get to Easter, Mark ends abruptly with the women um, leaving the empty tomb. That's it. Um, there's no mention of Pilate's. I find no fault in him or his wife's have nothing to do with this man. There's relatively few parables in Mark. For instance, Matthew has 14 parables in it that Jesus gave. Mark has only four. 
And there's no Sermon on the Mount in Mark either. So in comparison, Mark has relatively few of Jesus' teaching and sayings, yet it's rich in his doings. And that's important here because it appears that Mark was interested more in capturing Jesus' works than he was his words. He has his words, but he emphasizes his works. And uh, the way he does that is he divides his biography of Jesus up into three sections. Now, before I tell you about that, you're going to learn something really weird about me. Um, I can remember my, because football was so important to me growing up, that I can remember every grade, every year of my life in high school and college by my weight. Yeah. So when I was in ninth grade, I can tell you I weighed 150 pounds. And then when I was in 10th grade, I weighed 175. And then when I was in 11th grade, I weighed 195. And then when I was in 12th grade, I weighed right around 215, 220. And then when I went to college, I weighed 240. So when we talk about my history, I'll just talk to you about it in terms of weight. Well, I remember when I was 195, and then I can tell you a story. It's, it's framed like that in my mind. Are you disturbed by that? Or... <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Mark tells his story of Jesus, not by his weight, but by his location, okay? By where he is. And if we, uh, and this is in your notes, using Jesus' uh, geographic location, Mark's gospel can be broken into three scenes of Jesus' life. Very quickly in your notes, there's, in chapters 1 through 8, it's Galilee. He's in Galilee. And then in chapters 8 through 10, he's traveling and he's teaching and he's doing miracles. Because in chapters 11 through 16, he's in Jerusalem. So uh, after you fill that in, I'm going to put a map up there. And this is how, Mar and I'm going to refer back to this as we tell it. So this is, you know, first century Palestine. And um, for the first eight chapters of Mark, Jesus is entirely in the region of Galilee. And you can see the little lake to the side there. That's uh, Lake Tiberias, or also known as the Sea of Galilee. The first eight chapters, he's there. And then from chapters 8 to 10, he's on his way to Jerusalem. So he's in all these regions and cities and towns uh, that, that appear there. And then in chapters 11 through 16, he's in Jerusalem, which we know is where he's crucified and where he's resurrected. So that's Mark. And uh, some of the facts about his gospel you can use to impress your family at the next holiday season. Okay? Hopefully, hopefully it, it gives you, you know, a, a big picture here. So what did Mark include? If he left all this out, and th this is different about him, but who was he writing to and why? Uh, like the other three Gospels, he has a specific audience in mind, an agenda. He has a purpose, and we're going to keep this in mind as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is written to Romans and emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God. So they all get around to that fact, that you know, Jesus is the Son of God, but Mark is writing to Romans, and he... Uh, he wants to emphasize in his book that Jesus is the Son of God. That's obvious from the very get-go in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So here, right away, when he opens it up, he says, this is what I think about Jesus. And the rest of my book 
I'm going to try to prove to you that that's who he was. And this is the only time Mark will tell us what he really thinks. The rest of the book is just basically observations of Jesus' life, what he's doing, and how people are responding to what Jesus says and does. He refers here to Jesus as the Messiah. In some verses it says Christ. Um, it just means rescuer. And then he says he's the son of God, which is a very common way that Mark will refer to Jesus as we go through the book. Look, look at how often he uses that phrase to describe Jesus at his baptism. We're going to look at this next week. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son. This is God's voice coming down, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration in Mark 9.7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Again, God's voice. Listen to him. He even notes that demons refer to him this way in Mark 3.11. Whenever the impure spirits saw this, uh, the gathering maniac, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And when an outraged priest asks him uh, point blank who he is in Mark 14.61, he says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. So why does, why does Mark do this? Why does, he, why does he use the Son of God so much? It's, it's, he's targeting his audience, the Romans. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, sons of God, that phrase, is used, it was used to des describe their legendary heroes, their, um, their kings, their philosophers, the people upon which they wanted to bestow honor. So Roman emperors in the first century, you know, declared that they were a divine origin. And in Roman mythology, in Greek mythology, their mythological gods were born of other gods. They were sons of gods. And Caesar Augustus often referred to himself as a son of God. So under Roman rule, this entire uh, Gentile population is heavily influenced by that Greek mythology and this, this idea that the heroes of the world are sons of God. But in mythology, their, their gods were not human beings. They were mythological beings. So Mark here is saying that your mythological gods are not true gods. They're just myths. Myths. Mark says that they're nothing. And... The one I am writing of, Mark says, is the Christ. He is the king, the rescuer, the true son of God. And at the conclusion of his book, he even has one of their own, a centurion recognizing the fact that, the, the fact that Jesus is the son of God at his crucifixion, Mark 15, 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Of God. So Mark begins with that thought, and then at the very, almost right at the end of his, his account, he has a person for whom he's writing the book in history saying, This person declared that Jesus was the Son of God. So, so Mark didn't write his book to just tell some Jesus stories or to say that everyone should love each other in the world, or to revolutionize the first century culture. He has an agenda, and that is to declare who Jesus is, the King, the Son of God, and that Jesus is truly 
divine. And that's good news, he says. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, Mark doesn't start with a genealogy of Jewish history. The Romans could care less about that. He doesn't talk about the living word like John does because that would mean nothing to a Roman. Instead, he uses their frame of reference, their culture, to tell them who Jesus is. The good news then is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what makes him the Messiah, the Savior. And that is what Mark is claiming by saying to the Romans that Jesus is the Son of God. And his book that he's written is to prove this. That Jesus is more than a mere man who lived and died a tragic death. That he's not a myth um, made up to explain and control behavior through guilt or fear, but that he is the unique son of God who gave his life to rescue us from sin. That his ultimate sacrifice was sufficient to cover our sins. That he took his place on the cross. And as he did so, he, he did that not just as a human being, but as the Messiah, the Savior. And he wrote his gospel or his biography with that express purpose. That Jesus is not just a man. See, if Jesus is just a man, then Christianity is useless. We're all wasting our time. We're, we're making all kinds of sacrifices with our money and our effort and, and our time. It's all in vain. We're, we're, if Jesus isn't the son of God, then we're living by a code that's entirely unnecessary. We're holding ourselves to some standard that, is, that just doesn't even make any sense. See, the, the, the idea of Christian faith, and I'm almost done here. The idea of Christian faith is not to have faith in faith. It's not just have faith, and it's a beautiful thing. But it's to have faith in the living son of God. That's what Christianity is built on. Because there's no redemption in just having faith. Um, the important thing is in, in whom or what you place your faith in, right? Let me explain another way as the band comes up. If you, if you have a disease and a, a doctor um, gives you a false cure, maybe, maybe even a placebo, you know, it doesn't matter how much you take that false cure. You could take it every day on schedule, or you could take more of it than, than the doctor even tells you to do. But like, if it's not a true cure, it's, it's going to do nothing for you. But if that doctor gives you the real, he gives you real medicine that is designed for your illness and you take it like you're supposed to, um, you'll get well. Even if you don't, you don't even if you only kind of believe in the medicine, if you take it like the doctor tells you, you're going to get well. Which, you know, it doesn't take amazing faith to be saved. It just takes genuine faith. Because your faith is in the real thing. Remember Jesus said to have faith like, in a, like a mustard seed. Just a little bit. That's all we need. Because it's not about our faith. It is about in whom we place our faith. And then that's the question for every person who's ever lived to ask themselves, who is Jesus? 
And the rest of Mark is designed to lead his readers to answer that question. And according to the Bible, Jesus is the only real cure for sin, the illness that every human being has. And whoever takes that medicine is healed. There are many of you, in fact, probably most of you, you've already decided that question. You've already decided an affirmative. You've accepted Christ, and your faith is in him. And, you know, I believe that going through this book will bolster the faith that you have already. Your faith will be stronger. I mean, you'll be more sure. You'll be more confident in your salvation. But this is also going to be a great series for those of you that you're just checking out Christianity or maybe your mom drug you here today. I don't know. You know, you're just being nice because you're here on holiday. I don't know. But like this series would be really good for someone who is willing to ask the question, who, who really was Jesus? Because what you're going to see in this book is that um, you have an eyewitness account that's been handed off to a very reliable witness and you're going to see event after event and story after story and teaching after teaching. You're going to see the resurrection. And at the end of the book, um, on Easter, you can decide for yourself who Jesus is. Just as the audience that Mark intended his readers did as they read his book. And they they were either convinced or not that Jesus was the Son of God. That's what this study is going to be all about. God, thank you for, um, first of all, your word that is so reliable and powerful and life-changing. Thank you for your Son and just a, a way of making a relationship with human beings. It was impossible without him. We couldn't even fathom it. And thank you for the brilliant, brilliant people over the centuries that have, that have like, given their entire lives to understanding the different parts of the Bible and how we can benefit from it. I pray that for those that are believers, that our faith would be bolstered through this study. And for those that are questioning, that this would be eye-opening to them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being so attentive. I know it was very nerdy, but um, I'm glad you, only three of you fell asleep. I saw you. So, Ben, let's take it over. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.